Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Here are the words of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5.44 gives us uh, the most fantastic call, I think, uh, in the Christian life. It's a call to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And this to anyone, doesn't matter what your upbringing is, it doesn't matter uh, what even your faith is, to hear this kind of command is an extremely challenging idea. But it is, the only, it is only given to those who are Christians. These are the words of Jesus as he tells us this. In a culture that is both misdefined, uh, prayer, as well as love, we're often left scratching our heads as to exactly what Christ means by love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. When love means, in our culture, when love means uh, that which leaves all of our positive emotions intact, this, this idea of loving our enemies seems to indicate, it seems to allude to the idea that we should just lay down and take it. We should lay down, we should roll over. Uh, when prayer is defined, not according to bi- biblical categories, but instead according to well wishes, positive vibes, and good thoughts, prayer for those who persecute us seems irrational at best. And the reason why is because that would be irrational. This is not at all what God has intended by his instruction to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us will never be void, and this is important, If you're a note taker, you should write this down. Loving our neighbor and praying for those who persecute us will never be void of preaching the gospel or imitating the the unrivaled love of our Heavenly Father. That is both our call inside of this. But we should remember that uh, preaching the gospel will be offensive to the culture and displaying the love of God is actually convicting to some. When you love the way God loves, when you love the way God has commanded us to love, especially to an enemy, the scripture says that oftentimes they feel like you're heaping burning coals on their head. So there's a conviction that comes when we live out this kind of love and we pray for those who persecute us. This morning, what I'd like to do is first address our section of scripture, Matthew 5, 43 through 48, verse by verse. And then what we're going to do is we're going to tackle the terms love in this context and we're going to tackle prayer in its proper context. We're going to study what other parts of scripture say about both of these ideas, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. And all of this because getting it right is good, it's important, and it's freeing when we actually get this right. So if you would, pray with me a very, a very specific prayer. Father in heaven, help us today 
to learn how to pray for others. In particular, Lord, we ask that you would teach us to pray for those who persecute us. We want to love as you love. We want to pray as you've taught us to pray. We want everything in our lives to reflect your glory. It's in the great name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior, we pray. Amen. Matthew 5.43 begins with this statement. You have heard that it was said. This is going to be familiar to you. You have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Leviticus 19.18 is where we first see this concept of loving our neighbor. It speaks of a neighbor in the scripture as uh, one of the sons of your people, which means that a fellow Israelite was the original neighbor. So we, we need to understand that. Now, a case can be made in the New Testament that our neighbor is actually a fellow brother or sister in Christ. But if we're not careful and we take that too far, we won't understand uh, Jesus' teaching when he tells us the story of the Good Samaritan. This story either communicates, the Good Samaritan story, either communicates that anyone who is in need is in fact our neighbor, or it communicates that we are simply to be neighborly to everybody in the world. So, whatever way it's understood, the corrective here uh, from Jesus is not in how we're supposed to love our neighbor. I think we get that by default. I'm not saying that everybody gets it. Obviously, Jesus had to make a correction in the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Sometimes we don't get how we're supposed to treat our neighbor. And the reason why is because we need to better identify our neighbor. But the corrective is not about how you love your neighbor. The corrective is about how you treat your enemy. And the truth is, we're supposed to love them. And before we get into what that love looks like, let me finish the first half of verse 43. The Israelites were explicitly instructed to love their neighbor. How many of you know that? They were explicitly instructed to love their neighbor, but they were never commanded. Not one phrase in the Bible ever commands for them to hate their enemies. Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, which is the reference most often used in this area, Moses tells the people of God that the Ammonites, as well as the Moabites, were, uh, were enemies of God, right? And that they had been judged already by God uh, for their actions against his people, the Israelites. But the command that was given to the Israelites was that they were, quote, not to seek their enemies' peace or prosperity all their days. In other words, they were to let God's justice play out. This is how they were instructed. Now, if we're reading between the lines, and we often should be reading between the lines, if we're reading between the lines, we will no doubt understand what God was saying was, you need to let my justice play out no matter how ugly it gets. Think about it. The Israelites were told, don't seek their peace and their prosperity. It would appear that one of the proclivities of man, one of the tendencies of man, is to go and try to make things better. How many of you know that that's something we all do? We try to make things better. But justice, in many cases, simply needs to be enacted. This is all too often what is lacking in the modern church. We fail to trust that vengeance is, in fact, God's. Okay? We fail to trust that, so we either take it upon ourselves, right? Or we think vengeance is wrong. That becomes a problem. So we take vengeance upon ourselves in our anger. And what does the Bible say? Our anger does not produce the 
righteousness of God. So one side is we either don't like vengeance or we think it's ours to take and not not God's. Or, sadly, we so pervert love, we so seek people's peace and prosperity that they are uh, clueless to the fact that they have done wrong. They're clueless to this idea. This, if I can just take a quick second, this is a massive problem in the American church. A massive problem in the American church where what happens is when somebody is, when somebody's feeling broken or when somebody's feeling convicted by the Spirit of God, what happens from most Christians is we want to swoop in and listen, we want to comfort them. But here, I need you to say this to your neighbor. I am not the comforter. Turn and say, I am not the comforter. You are not the comforter. Who is the comforter? The Holy Spirit is the comforter. Mark, since you're my neighbor right now because you don't have one, I am not your comforter, right? But the reality is is that we're not people's comforter. We have this problem. Now, just a quick little uh, stab here. I'm not trying to offend anybody, but moms do this a lot, okay? Dad, bad cop. Mom, good cop. Dad comes in, laying down the law. It's much harder than that. Anyway, (laughs) dad comes in, laying down the law. Mom says, huh? And panics. And this is a tendency of us. The sad part of this is when we do this with eternal things. When we come in and we try to comfort people in a way that we should not comfort them. Guys, when God is convicting somebody, when he's convicting you, I'm hands off. Why am I hands off? Because he needs to pummel you if he needs to pummel you. (laughs) Right? Smile. God does that sometimes. But the scripture says he disciplines those he loves. You've got to remember this reality. Far too often, this becomes the plight of the church today. We either think vengeance is ours or we pervert love and we try to overprotect people and comfort them. We would do well to remember that vengeance is not wrong. It simply belongs to God. And likewise, only God's love transforms people. Not my menial love, okay? I I fall so short in the way I love. I try to fix everything. But God says, no, 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 stop. You're not allowing the wound to produce its effect. You're not allowing this to work. Over time, the Israelites translated, don't seek the prosperity of your enemies, to mean hate them. And that's kind of something that happens in our brain. We think that if I'm not seeking their prosperity, I must obviously seek the opposite. But this is why Jesus said, you have heard it said. You have heard it said. They were taught on the one hand through the oral tradition that they were to love their neighbor. They got this one right. But they were also taught through the oral tradition to hate their enemies. And they were taught this truth by men. Okay? So Jesus comes in and he says, nope. Didn't say that. So to hate your enemy became common in the lexicon of their day. But Jesus in verse 44 corrects this erroneous idea. Jesus says, I know what you've heard, but you're wrong. I know what you've heard, my paraphrase. I know what you've heard, but you're wrong. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I can't stress this enough, church. Jesus did not come and trade in an old command for a new one. It wasn't the rusty old model that the God of the Old Testament gave that said, hate your enemies, and he brought in a new one. God has not changed. He is immutable. He does not change. He never will change. God never said, hate your enemies. They believed that they should hate their enemies. 
Jesus didn't give the God of the Old Testament a makeover. Instead, he proclaims the God who has always been. A God who Psalm 145 says is slow to anger. Jesus is merely correcting what the Israelites had misapplied. How many of you know we misapply a lot of things? Right? What we need to do is welcome the correction of God when we misapply those things. We need to welcome that correction and, and I'm not asking you to listen to me for your correction. I'm asking you to listen to the word of God for your correction. If the word of God says you're doing it wrong, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) I mean, it's simply uh, that simple, or it is that simple. As we move forward, the why behind all of this, love your enemy, uh, love your neighbor and your enemy, the why behind this uh, shows the very heart of God. Look at verse 45. It states this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that, say that with me, so that, I love those two words in the scripture, so that, and here's why you're supposed to love your enemies, so that you can be the sons of your father who is in heaven. You want to know what God is like? Well, that's what he's like. He loves his enemies. Isn't that staggering? Isn't that staggering? You want to know what God is like? Well, then he's exactly like that which he instructs. A Christian must remember that a son is to act like his father. A child is to act like their father. And we are to bear a family resemblance. We are to love our enemies because in doing this, we reflect the son of God. We reflect the God of the universe. He's compassionate towards his enemies. Amen? He is loving to those who have persecuted him. Amen? And we did that. And so we're supposed to do the exact same thing. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. Here's what it says. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. You remember what the previous uh, passages say about this? It says, that, it says that somebody would not, uh, very rarely, does somebody die for a righteous person. Uh, it would be unheard of. It would be unbelievable for somebody to die for a good person. You're not righteous. You're not good. But God shows his majesty. He shows his beauty in that he died for you while you were a sinner. While you were his direct enemy. Look at verse 9. Much more than... Having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is powerful. We were enemies. Now, scripture details what that enemy looked like, what, we're, uh, what we participate in, I, I suppose you would say. Look to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Colossians 1, 21 and 23. And although you were formerly alienated, so being an enemy of God set you apart from God. You were alienated from him. Uh, It's the prodigal son story, the young son who leaves town. He goes to make his own world, right? You were alienated. And look at this. You were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. You didn't think right about God. You didn't like God. And it showed through in your actions. This is true of all of us. And while we were in that state, what does the scripture say? What does the scripture say? Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. 
If indeed you come, in the, if you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel, the gospel, remember that, the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. The good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that he loved his enemies. You were his enemies. Your actions and your mindset were far apart from God. You were alienated. Now, I'm talking to a bunch of Christians mainly, so you guys, are, you guys can look at me and say, yeah, we, we understand that. But all too often, we need to remember it. And the reason why we need to remember it is because the way Christ loved us is how we're supposed to love others as well as our enemies. And this is where we fall short as Christians. We accept that Jesus loved us while we were enemies, but when we face our enemies, we say, uh-uh, I ain't loving that dirtbag. That's, that's what we do, okay? And so we don't extend it. The, re the reason why as Christians we need to be reminded so often is because when we look at each other, we don't see what we're supposed to see. So God tells us, remind Remind, remember what has happened. Remember the gospel. The gospel is, while you were an enemy, Christ died for you. You do the same. That is the truth of the gospel. Our most explicit example of this love and prayer, I believe, comes from Jesus himself. While on the cross, Jesus prays these words. What is prayer? It's talking to God, right? It's talking to God. Here's what he says. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Picture this for a second. Jesus is beaten, he's abused, he's hung on a Roman cross, he's done so between two thieves, and that is all motivated because he loved you. He loved me. This doesn't, it still doesn't make sense to me. But his love sends him to the cross. While on the cross, so he loves his enemies, goes to the cross, and while on the cross, he's praying for those who are literally persecuting him in that moment. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So, raise show of hands, how many of you are ready to sign up for this kind of love? But that's what you're called to. That's exactly what we're called to. And this is challenging. And as Christians, one of the best things that we can do is understand that it's challenging and realize that over time, we're going to screw it up. I'm going to be sent out to love Bob. He's not my enemy, but I'm going to be sent out to love Bob. Some days. Anyway, I'm going to be sent out to love Bob, and Bob's not going to be so lovable, right? But I have to make that choice anyway. And then I'm, there are going to be times when I don't love him properly. And what needs to happen in the Christian world, in Christian circles, is we need to embrace the fact that we get it wrong, but there's grace in that. Confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. So my job, my goal for, to, toward you is to love you. My goal towards the world is to love even my enemies. And I need you guys to know I'm going to get it wrong. But I know that you're going to get it wrong too. And that doesn't mean, well, why bother? Why try? Instead, that means let's just have grace for one another. Amen? The amens are not loud enough. You do not believe it. Let's get an amen in this house. I need, I need an organ player. And I need somebody that's willing to dance across the stage. Okay? So that, that'll get everybody riled up. Right? Jesus, Jesus loves his enemies, hangs on the cross for them, and while on the cross, he prays for those who persecute him. You can't get a better example than that. 
So God in Christ has commanded and modeled both love of our enemies and prayer for those who persecute us. If we're going to be like our Heavenly Father, we will love those who hate us. Can I get an amen? Amen. We will love those who set themselves up as our enemies. Can I get an amen? Amen. We will love those who are not our brothers. Awesome. I didn't even have to prompt you. I love it. In doing this, we will be perfect or complete as our Heavenly Father is complete. That's the right definition. That's the right understanding of the term. Most people say, be perfect as God is perfect. Uh Uh-oh. That's not what that says. It says, be complete as he is complete. Be mature as he is mature. You want to know what makes a mature Christian? The Christian who loves beyond those who love them to those who don't love them. That's what a mature Christian looks like. This is when we start to look more like our Father in heaven. So, we've got to start loving our enemies, and then we can tackle praying for those who persecute us, but we're going to look at both of those terms now. The word for love, so if you're a note taker, you're going to want to write this down. The the word for love here is agapao, A-G-A-P-A-O, and this is simply the verb tense of the all-too-familiar Greek word Agape, right? In 1 John 4, 8, when we read that God is love, that's the noun. That's agape. God is agape. That's his character. That's his nature. That's who he is. But when we go further into that verse, right before it, it tells us that those, the one who does not love does not know God. That's agapao. It's an action, right? It's a verb. So agapao is the verb. We're to act out exactly who God is. The word means The word agape or the word agapao means a preferential kind of love. How many of you prefer others more than yourself? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? All the moms probably should just raise their hands by default. But but this is hard sometimes because you don't want to prefer somebody. But it it gets deeper when we understand this. So it's a preferential love. It's a love that is chosen. It's a love that is acted out by the will. C.S. Lewis defines it in his book, The Four Loves, as a love that is not based at all on the goodness of the beloved. Agape is a love that is played out that is not based at all on the goodness of the beloved. In many ways, the modern world would call this unconditional love. Now, I I don't like that term. It drives me nuts because we've, we've done what we've done with love and prayer to it. We've perverted it. But this is a love that is a choice. How many of you have ever heard this or said this to your kids? Love is a choice. It's not a feeling. Yes and no. Yes and no. And here's why. Agape, agapao, the action of God's character, is a decision. That's a decision, that's a choice that you have to make. Meanwhile, we have other words like phileo or storg or eros. These are things that have feelings attached to them deeply, and we're going to go through them in just a second. But agape is a choice that you make. There are four main words used in the New Testament for love. The first is eros. You can write this down, eros, which means erotic love. 
Now, I'm not going anywhere inappropriate with this, but this is the kind of love that is shared between a husband and a wife in a covenant marriage. This includes sex, but it is not limited to that. There are many things that are, that are beautiful and very, uh, very intimate that can be shared. Guess what? This is not the love that you're supposed to show to your enemies. <laughs> Hallelujah! Because that would be terribly awkward, right? The second, the second term for love in the Greek is the word storg. And this is a love of affection. This is a love of feeling, church. This is a love of affection. C.S. Lewis refers to this as being rooted in warmth and familiarity. This is also not how you're supposed to love your enemies. You see, see, when we misdefine love and we misdefine prayer and we misdefine all these other terms, we have no idea what Jesus is asking of us. And so some come in the church and they hear the pastor say, you should love your enemy. And in their mind, they go, so I should be warm and familiar with my enemy? I have nothing in common with my enemy. And God never said you should. He never said any of this. Can this come with time? Can this come with time? I would say it can come with time, but it would also come with repentance on your enemy's behalf. But this is not what God has called us to do. The third form of love is phileo. This is the love of a friend. This is why we call uh, 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 the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia. That's why we call it what we call it, the city of brotherly love. This is what phileo means. It's a word used to communicate a kiss in the Greek, but not erotic in any way. It's simply what the world, what the world knows as a uh, kiss of fellowship, a kiss of friendship. How many of you know that? See, the Bible talks about uh, to, to greet each other with a, with a holy kiss. Nothing erotic in this idea, okay? The holy kiss, knock it off, you guys kissing each other. Okay, so it, that's, that's not what this is about at all, okay? This is about a brotherly sort of love. Guess what? Jesus didn't say that we were supposed to love this way either. This is not what he means when he says love your enemies. So what does Jesus mean? What is, the, what is the plan here? Well, it's simply that he means what he says, or more profoundly, it means to love as he is, right? You are to love as he is. Agape uh, is distilled by C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves uh, down to charity. In Matthew 5.45, Jesus communicates this charity as allowing the sun to shine on the evil and the good. See, if you're God and you get to make the choice that the sun's going to shine, you're going to let the sun shine on both sides, the evil and the good. It goes on and it says, the rain is going to fall on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. If, you, if, if agape is an act of will and you are the maker of the rain, you choose, God has chosen to let the rain fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. So if we put this in our idea uh, or our you know, brains, would you open the door for a known enemy? Agape would. Agape would. The, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the good and the bad. It's not a, a statement of their moral character. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with your choice and your loving them. Agape would do this. 
Verse 46 and 47, Jesus points out how we can demean the nature of agape when we show it only to those who show it first to us. And this is modeled in our lives by saying things like this. Well, I'll love them when they prove themselves. Or something like, well, I'll love them when they show that they can actually love me in return. Until then, it's a no-go. See, this is not agape. What has happened is you have, you have perverted agape. It's no longer a choice of the will. This is a, a, an expression of affection, and it needs to be preempted. They need to show affection to you, and you're going to show it back to them. So you've belittled this beautiful love of God by saying things like, well, if they'll get their act together, I'll love them. Finally, in verse 48, the bar is set really high. And it's called perfection. Again, completeness or maturity. So this perfection is attained. This love is given to those who don't deserve it. And we attain that perfection or that maturity, that completeness, when we love people who don't deserve it. And who better fits the bill than your enemy, right? And I'm not looking at any of you in particular right now. Okay? So we love those who are even our enemy. This past week, I was able to... Um, to take some time and go on this walk to Emmaus. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm pushing it this morning on all the, that I wanted to communicate, but I got to go on this walk to Emmaus. And one of the themes for the walk to Emmaus, one of the things that gets said over and over is agape, agape love, agape love. And one of the things that if they get right, and I'm not saying they get anything wrong, but one of the things that they get right really well is that they, uh, the agape that they're communicating is often, is primarily the agape love that we show between Christians, okay? So um, giving somebody a cup of cold water and doing all of these different things. It's a huge and beautiful love. It's an act of will. You're choosing to do it. You're giving it to them and pouring it out on them. And so that's, that's a beautiful thing. But it is easier, and I have to say this, it is easier to love people who love you. It is easier to. It's still agape. It's still this form of love. It still mirrors God, okay? It's still charity to somebody who needs it. You fill out a, 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 you know, one of those forms online where you take meals to people who are sick. This is charity. It's awesome. You made the decision. You got to jump in the car. You got to cook the food. That's awesome. That's agape love. But what we didn't talk about a lot in this weekend, and what I'm trying to stress right now, is that that love is supposed to extend to those people who hate you. Not those people you hate, because you ain't supposed to hate them. <laughs> right? Those people who hate you. You are supposed to show the very heart of the walk to Emmaus. You're supposed to show this agape love to other people. So that, that covers love. Well, let me, let me finish it off with this. There is not one passage in Scripture that tells us that we should be warm and affectionate, good old pals with our enemies. doesn't say it. So you can remove that from your head. I'm not saying that it won't happen. I'm simply saying that's not what Jesus said. Okay? He said to make a choice. Your call is charity, and it's charity of the highest order. You want to know what the definition of that charity is? 1 Corinthians 13 4 through 8. Agape is, agapao is, love is, P 
patient and kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It keeps no record of wrong. It doesn't celebrate in unrighteousness. But boy, oh boy, will it celebrate when truth shows up. Right? This is the kind of love that we're supposed to show even our enemies. Love doesn't give up. Love never fails. Show of hands, who's signing up? Because this is what you're called to. Here's what we should do as Christians. We should raise our hands boldly, but understanding we're going to get it wrong, right? I want to love this way, and I'm going to botch it a lot. I want to love this way. We should be willing to raise our hands, but we should also be willing to admit we're not going to make it work all the time. Okay, so what about prayer? We'll wrap up with this. What are we praying for concerning our enemies? There's a lot here. The word for prayer is pronounced prosukomai. Prosukomai. I don't want you to say it with me or I would have put it up there. But it appears several times in this particular sermon of Jesus from Matthew 5 to Matthew 6. It shows up several times. He talks about how we should pray in our room. Think about the difference of this kind of prayer and often what we do in the church today. We pray in our room behind closed doors so people can't see us and we should pray void of meaningless repetition. And yet the church today prays in front of everybody, see you at the pole with lots of meaningless nonsense banter asking God for breakthrough. Whatever that means, nobody knows. Because we don't know what God wants for us. So we keep everything in life ambiguous. Those are not the prayers that God has called us to pray. He's called us to pray for specific things. Barney this morning talked about the promises of God. You can't pray the promises of God if you don't know the promises of God. And you shouldn't pray promises you make up. (laughs) Sorry, you need to catch that at some point today. You should not be praying promises that you make up. Jesus goes on to model this prayer in what? In the most infamous prayer of the Bible, the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way. Our Father who, is art in heaven, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That prayer is soaked with your position, your attitude, your love towards your enemies. Let me draw you specifically to verse 12. Jesus says, forgive us of our debts as we also forgive our debtors. This models prayer to our enemies in the most amazing way. Think about what is said here. Think about what is said. It is actually saying, because it is past tense for our forgiveness, it is literally saying, Father, forgive us in the same way we forgive others. Gulp. Father, we want you to repay us in kind. So the way I forgive old Jimmy over here, you forgive me that way. And God goes, you ain't forgiven him yet. God is from Kentucky, just so you know. (laughs) Um, So you haven't forgiven him yet. Uh Uh-oh. That's what that says. Read it again. Father, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven our debtors. Those who have trespassed against us. Repay us in kind, Lord. You forgive us the same way we forgive others. This is humbling. That's how we're to pray for our enemy. We're to forgive them. 
Micah 6.8 teaches us that we are to be a people who do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Do you know how different it is to love and to pray for an enemy or somebody when you're, how difficult it is to pray or how easy it is to pray for an enemy when you're living according to Micah 6, 8? It's easy when you're doing justice, when you're acting merciful, when you're loving all that God loves. When you're doing this, this system gets much easier. When you walk, uh, when you walk humbly, what are you doing? You're remembering that to whom uh, much is given, much is expected. You're remembering that if you've been forgiven a bunch, you should love a bunch. Nathan International Version. That's what you're supposed to do. If you are, uh, if you are walking humbly, you will realize that you were loved before you were ever lovable. Amen? And if you are doing justice, guess what it means? Back to the beginning of the message. It means that you're proclaiming the gospel to your enemies because you want life to come into them. You want them to experience Jesus and Jesus and more of Jesus. That means that you're going to preach the gospel to them and you're going to display the love of God in their lives. Praying for our enemies is not about the well wishes and positive vibes of today's world. Neither is it the meaningless rambling of the modern church. The Bible speaks of intercessory prayer, our request for another. You should request things for your neighbor and for your enemy. The Bible talks about prayers of consecration, setting somebody apart for a thing. You should be praying for your fellow Christian to be holy and set apart, and you should be praying for your enemy to be set apart unto salvation. You should pray those same things. And lastly, the Bible talks about prayers of justice or a fancy theological term known as imprecation. These are prayers that God would destroy his enemies. Wait a minute, Nathan. I thought you said love your enemies. I've heard it said this way. God could destroy his enemies one of two ways. One, he could just destroy them. Or he could make them friends. Or he could love them. And guess what happens when you love your enemy and they yield? They become your friend and you no longer have an enemy. Amen? This is a big, big deal. So in so much as that we remember our mission is to call a lost people to be found or dead people to be raised or to call our enemy to join us at the table, we'll be doing this right. We can and should pray prayers of mercy, of love, compassion, intercession, as well as imprecation. We should pray those things because God has called us to these things. Jesus says, love your neighbor and love your enemy. Love is defined according to God's character. Who he is is how you're supposed to do this. If God wouldn't do it, you shouldn't do it. But if God was willing to do it, the cross, then you should be willing to do it. Amen? So, we're going to change things up, and we're going to end our celebrations on a regular basis from now on with communion. Uh, We wanted these communion meditations and communion times to be uh, more, um, how do I say it, Um, more heartfelt, more real. How many of you know that in church you get to doing a program for so long and all of a sudden it just loses all meaning? right? You come in, you check in, you do your thing, whatever it is, you leave. You have no idea what church is all about. 
But if we will reset, if we'll press the reset button and we'll come back to what the scriptures say and we'll change our hearts about these matters, I think we can come back to a right place. So, so we're going to start taking communion at the end of every celebration and then uh, and the communion teams can come on up. But we're also going to do communion with our kids. We're going to invite the kids into this. Mark's going now. He's going to invite the older classrooms. No babies are going to come swarming in, okay? So they're going to come in. They're going to stand over here when your family comes up to take communion. Hold on, guys. When your family comes up to take communion, you can put it down. When your family comes up to take communion, um, I just want you, I want you to grab your kids and I want you to find a place. I want you to take that communion. The worship team is going to begin pre- uh, playing uh, on every Sunday service in the, at the end. And they're going to do their best to set the mood for reflection and for honoring God and for doing those things. So I encourage you to, uh, to spend some time in reflection. Spend some time uh, doing what God wants you to do, thinking and pondering him and his ways and all the things that he's called us to. We can do this as a family and we can do this as individuals if you don't have a family. So here's, here's what I want you to remember and you can come up the same way that you once came up. What I want you to remember is that Jesus, on the, uh, the night of his, uh, his betrayal, he, he had a supper with his disciples. And he took bread, and he broke that bread. And when he broke that bread, this is what he did, he broke the bread, and he handed it to them. He passed it around, and you guys can go ahead and grab those. He, he passed that bread around, and he said, this is my body, which was broken for you. This is my body, which was broken for you. And right after he said that, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He hadn't given the juice yet. It was wine then. But anyway, so he hadn't, woohoo! Anyway, so he hadn't given the juice yet, but he, he broke the bread and he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do you know what we need to remember often, as often as we take communion? We need to remember that Jesus' body was broken for his enemies because he loved you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. His body was broken. The bread symbolizes that. It is broken because, and you need to remember it, because we forget he loved us enough to go to a cross. Amen? So after he broke the bread and he passed the bread around, he grabbed the cup and he said to them, take that one. He said, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood. A new covenant in my blood. Do you know the old covenant was was covered in blood? In the blood of animals? In the blood of sacrifices? In the blood of things that could not redeem anyone? This blood represents something else. This blood represents the blood of the God of the universe. It's, It's not the same, church. It's not a meaningless thing. It's not something to forget so quickly. This is something that should cause us to tremble. Because Jesus shed his blood. And what did he do in it? He covered every sin you've ever committed, every sin that you commit tomorrow, and every sin that you'll ever commit from this point on. And he calls you to just come to him. When you are broken, when you fall down, he is a loving father. He is not your enemy any longer. He is a loving father who says, please get up. Please come to me. This blood was shed so that you would be perfect. The 
blood of animals could not perfect you. The blood of Jesus, there's no contestation. No one wins over this blood. No one changes what this blood does. So this morning, as you come forward, and as you take a piece of the bread and, the, and you dip it in the juice, I want you to remember, I want you to remember that his body was broken for you because he loved his enemies. And his blood was shed for you in an act of intercession because he prays for those who persecute him, those who spit in his face, those who outright hate him. He loves us, church. He loves us. Amen. He loves us, and he's called us to love just as he is. So this is what I'm calling you to. This is what Jesus is calling you to. This is what we should be inviting our friends and our family to experience. Jesus didn't come to entertain you, but Jesus didn't come to bore you. Jesus came to save you. Jesus came to save you. He loves you. So as I pray, I just I want you to get yourself ready to remember his body broken for you. And I want you to get yourself ready to think and remember on the back that he interceded on your behalf. He loves you, church. He loves you. Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you do. God, we are so sorry that we have forgotten but we are so grateful that you are compassionate and merciful to us. We fall short in so many ways, God. But we're your children now because of that bloodshed for us and because of your body broken for us. And so today, Lord, we come back in remembrance of who you are and what you've done and say, have your way. Teach us to love as you loved and teach us to pray as you prayed, even for those who have declared themselves to be our enemies. We praise you, Lord, and thank you in Jesus' great name. Amen. Come. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.